0: Welcome to Word Matters, presented by the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Word Matters is a podcast dedicated to helping Christians understand some of the most confusing and controversial passages of the Bible. And now, join the conversation with your hosts, Trevin Wax and Brandon Smith. Is it possible to do works in Jesus' name and yet still be lost? This is the question we will answer on this episode of Word Matters. I'm Brandon Smith, brand manager for the HCSB, and uh, joined here, as always, with my co-host with the most, the great Trevin Wax, managing editor of The Gospel Project.
1: You're not going to do that again, are you? Uh,
0: I might. We'll see. And uh, today we are joined uh, again by our special guest, uh, Dr. Scott McKnight uh, from Northern Seminary. So, Scott, welcome back to Word Matters.
2: Thank you. Good to be with you, Brandon and Trevin. Scott, we're,
1: we're glad to have you on today for another discussion about another one of the hard sayings of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, um, you could say the entire Sermon on the Mount comes to us as a hard saying that's uh, uh. both <laughs> inspiring and also deeply convicting. Uh, but before we get started, just for on behalf of our listeners, I'd I'd love for you for for you to give us a little bit of background on how you first came to be interested in New Testament studies and particularly the Gospels. What what, what uh, provoked your interest in that field of uh, theology?
2: Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, you said the Sermon on the Mount is filled with hard sayings. A Jewish scholar has said the history of the interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount is the history of evading the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> wow. Um, when I was, I, I was converted as a 17-year-old uh, in between my junior and senior year in high school. And, um, and immediately, I had a driving passion to study the Bible, and as a senior in high school, I taught myself Greek, and I read through the whole Bible. And I, in the evenings, I worked on a commentary. I read a commentary on the book of Galatians by William Hendrickson. I paid $2.95 for a brand-new book. Which it was, it was very good, and uh, I just wanted to study the Bible. And then I went to Christian college. Uh, to study the Bible. I, I got a degree in history, but I, my only passion was really studying the Bible. So I, I, I learned Greek, and I began to work in Hebrew and, and studies. Uh, when I was a senior in college, Ralph Martin's first volume of his New Testament introduction called New Testament Foundations came out. And I didn't know any better uh, than to read it. So I read it. And I was fascinated by all the studies that had taken place in the Gospels. And I I think it is fair to say that I grew up in the kind of Christianity where the Gospels barely existed. They were sort of on the margin of our consciousness. We were uh, a little bit of law, a little bit of Psalms, a little bit of Jesus, and a whole lot of Paul and a whole lot of the book of Revelation. And so just the topics were fascinating to me. The theology was fascinating to me. And the first class I took in seminary uh, was at 745 on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I think maybe it was Tuesday, Thursday, with Walt Liefeld called the Synoptic Gospels. And in the first day as we sat there, I said to myself, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. And so, from that point on, I just sort of focused on the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, and I, then I did, my disserta- I did my master's thesis, and then I did my dissertation in the Gospels. And I was fortunate to get a job at Trinity, right out of seminary. And because there were so many New Testament faculty, and so many of them wanted to teach Paul, I was able just to spend my time teaching Synoptic Gospels, mostly, I, mean, I taught exegesis and other things in Greek syntax, et cetera. Uh, but I got to spend a lot of time uh, working on the Gospels. So I that that's how I got into the Gospels. And and you know I I don't know that if you know this, but I I'm not doing Gospel studies anymore. I'm doing Pauline studies. Uh, I've always wanted to get to Paul. I used to joke that uh, when I finished with Jesus, I would get to I would move on to Paul but I'm in no hurry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think it's, it's funny that you mentioned the the commentaries about uh, the Sermon on the Mount being one long line of trying oh. to evade Jesus's words. I, uh, you, you said that your church background had Revelation as a strong commentary, too, and it reminded <laughs> me of uh, what G.K. Chesterton said about commentaries of that. Though, though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, um, he, he saw no creature as wild as one of his interpreters. <laughs> <laughs> So there's some truth to that well um uh, today today we're dealing with uh one of those hard sayings in the Sermon on the Mount: Jesus is warning against false prophets and uh why you can recognize false prophets and teachers by their fruit uh, and then immediately after he says, "You can recognize false teachers by their fruit, he mentions some people who in fact, seem to have good fruit, and yet Jesus says he doesn't know them either uh, they're lost yeah
0: so let's read uh, let 's read that passage and get into it here. Um, Matthew 7, 21 to 23, right at the tail end of the, of the Sermon on the Mount here, uh, from the HCSB says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? And I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers.
1: So Scott, this uh, this passage is problematic for for some people, but for for different reasons. So I want I want us to look at both of those reasons here as you help us interpret this. On on the one hand, it looks like Jesus is contradicting what he just said about knowing a true follower of Christ by their fruit, because here it seems like he's saying, well, well, you can't really rely on your fruit necessarily either. Um, on the other hand, the emphasis here on works is so strong that um, some may wonder, you know, how does this fit with what the Apostle Paul says about how we're justified by faith alone, not by works, you know. But um, uh, let's talk about that first element, though. Is it, is it possible to do things that look like they are God's will and yet not know God?
2: Well, of course, of course that's true. Uh, and I happen to grow up in a church that had a lot of emphasis on Puritanism. So, you know, I heard this a lot about the, uh, the capacity for human beings to be deceived. Uh, But I, I I think we can hear the word of Jesus here in a way that does not create tension with the fruit of the previous passage by suggesting that the fruit of the previous passage was the inevitable expression of new life in a person, whereas the deeds done here uh, and it's interesting they're not really summarized with a word. uh the deeds done here are expressions of people in powerful positions, but not expressions of a genuine inner uh transformed born again life flow from the grace of God and the presence of god's spirit so i you know the tension is real, I guess, uh but for Jesus, I think this would be. Uh, Just utter clarity. And once again, we're confronted with Jesus who says things that just sort of knock you back and you think, wow. Uh, Just as the Sermon on the Mount opens with Beatitudes, and while it might be really cute to to sort these out in some kind of list of virtues, the, the impact of the text is, you know, am I one of these people? Uh, and the end of the Sermon on the Mount here, I think, uh, Jesus talking to his followers and probably the apostles, who are learning these uh, the powers of the of the age at Transform, and they're starting to speak prophetic words and they're starting to do miraculous deeds, and Jesus I think is just kind of knocking them back a bit for them to realize that. The the ability to do these things, or the successful performance of these things, is not necessarily a genuine measurement of your spiritual relationship with God, and it's no guarantee that you will enter into the kingdom of God.
0: So you would so you would say that that works maybe maybe they're one way of inspecting fruit. Maybe it's a particular thing he's telling them in this time that he's instructing his disciples and all these things are going on, but. But I mean, are there other other ways to tell? I mean, obviously we focus sometimes we focus on works a lot when we talk about this is how you know you're a Christian. Here's these 15 works of the fruit of the spirit or whatever. Uh, would you say that there are maybe other tests of genuine discipleship beside that that we shouldn't just let this verse be it?
2: Uh, you know, I would say I would I would want to. Uh, I think I would be imitating Jonathan Edwards here, and I would be extraordinarily careful in many contexts. Of being of having the capacity and to discern whether someone is in the kingdom of God or not. Mm-hmm. I'd I'd really want to be careful about being confident uh, to do that sort of thing. Uh, but in general, I think it is fair. To say First John and the tests of life uh, from Robert Law, and I learned this also from John Stott. Uh, and in a, uh, the test of a transformed life that we have in Christ, that these things witness to a reality uh, when that reality is true, but that nearly everything that witnesses to that reality can be faked and imitated, and be done in such a superficial way that it is not at all the genuine thing. Hmm. So I, I, you know, I, I don't have problems. With creating ambiguity, because I believe ambiguity, and I think this is what Jesus is doing, he's driving right at his disciples, creating ambiguity for them so that they will learn to trust in God, not in themselves, not be braggadocious about their capacities. Uh, You know, I I live around scholars and authors. I've been around a few who like to announce to the world how many books they've written. (laughs) And, and I think, you know, uh, you know just, just do your job. And if it ends up that you write six books, fine. And if you write 100 books, fine. I was with a Jewish scholar who had just written over 600 books, Jacob Neusner one time, and he said so in the most humble of ways. And, and I've been around other scholars who've written just a couple, and I think they think that everybody in the world should read it because they've changed the world with it. So I think Jesus is pushing against us for us to hear that what we think um, demonstrates our piety or demonstrates the genuine article uh, can be faked. And we need to be driven to our knees uh, to be in touch with God through prayer, through communication, and through openness to God's grace itself.
1: Well, Scott, that's a a, a good word of exhortation for us and it's also it's also a good segue into uh the other problematic aspect of this passage that some people might have. Um I, I think there there might be some hesitation on the part of some Protestants um who very well meaning, well intentioned, want to make sure that we're safeguarding the foundational truth, that uh our standing before God is by faith alone in Christ alone, not of works. Um when when we run into a passage like this where Jesus Says very clearly that we will be judged by works, and that our works are part of what is being considered, at least on the last day. Uh, uh, some people get nervous about that, and they want to maybe uh, explain that away, or uh, maybe minimize the the severity and the you mentioned ambiguity. Or Jesus wanted to sort of knock us back and make us think. Here, can you can you help us put those two things together? You, we we do have Paul's doctrine of justification by faith alone. But here we do have Jesus very firmly insisting that, you know, works are there as the evidence for justification.
2: Well, uh, let's say, let, let me be a, a Bible, biblicistic kind of guy. The word works is not here, and the word justification is not here, so I'm, I'm a little safer. Uh, but I, I was in, during my doctoral days, I was at Tyndale House, and there was a Tyndale, a set of lectures. Uh, and I'll never forget Howard Marshall giving a lecture, and I I think it was something like this. Uh, Justified, let's see, uh, justified by faith, but judged by works. Hmm. And I, I think that is not, the guy who talks about justification so much, the Apostle Paul, is also the one who says that we're judged by works. So it works for Paul. And I think it is very important for you and for me, for all of us, to let the Bible be the Bible. And if it worked for Paul, it it ought to work for us. If it's good enough for Paul, it's good enough for us. And that is, you know, it's pretty simple, I think, probably, just to, to beg off all of it by saying that works are a, let's say, a manifestation of faith, but that we're really saved by faith or justified by faith. And that what God will look at is our faith, because that focuses on Christ, and therefore the works end up uh, getting knocked off the map.
1: Yeah. Well,
2: it, I, I think uh, Tom Wright and those who uh, investigate Romans chapter 8 have got this right, and that is that um, that uh, tr- that the, the true transforming grace of God, or the grace of God, the Spirit of God, is effective that it is transformative, that when God's grace invades our life in Christ through the power of the Spirit, we become different people. And this is, I think this is uh, consistent with what Jesus says here and with what Paul says. We can be judged by our works because the Spirit of God is at work in us, transforming us. Uh, And we can hear Jesus saying, that these things that we do are not necessarily uh, a pure indicator of our status with God, because what matters is that this grace of God is transforming. And I don't know, Trevin, uh, your experience in teaching about this. I've been in some audiences uh, where I had to say what Jesus says in Matthew 7 and really push into the conscience of college students for whom grace is an excuse for whom grace is uh, not connected to transformation. And I've been in other contexts where people's conscience are very sensitive. Right. And because I've written on this topic, I get a couple letters a year from people who wonder if they've lost their salvation. All right. In those in those situations, I think we press home the great doctrines of justification, of the adequacy of God's work in Christ, that it has nothing to do with us. And so, I think the the Bible's rhetoric is designed to speak to all human conditions, and here one condition, and there another condition, and trying to put them together uh, is a construct. Sometimes it's it's hardly taught in the Bible that we get the rhetorical edges of the conversation, rather than sort of a systematic theological textbook on these conversations.
1: I, I like that pastoral approach that you mentioned there, Scott. I mean, the, the way I've I've put it together in my own mind and, and ministry has been to say at times the gospel provides a word of comfort, and there are times when the gospel provides a word of challenge. Uh, We could say the gospel is both comforting and challenging always simultaneously at the same time. But there are times when the person that you're counseling with or meeting with or speaking to needs the challenge of that transformative fruit inspecting aspect of grace. You know, test yourself to see if you're in the faith that that challenge. But other times it is that sensitive soul who's uh, demonstrates the fruit of repentance so clearly, who is uh, concerned that. They've, they're self-deceived, or or what my, that that very that has a that needs the comfort of uh, the doctrine of justification being by faith uh, alone through grace uh, through what Christ has done. And so sometimes you're you're going to sound more comforting, and sometimes you're going to sound more challenging. But I think that as you said, we that's what we see in Scripture. Uh, you see those uh, those two poles. There uh, that really do go together because we believe grace is transformative. But y- you see the accent falling in different places depending on the the setting and the audience.
2: Yeah, you know uh, I used to joke about this. I used to get uh, in the mail every year uh, Christian calendars. I don't think I I don't get them anymore. I don't know what happened. But for years I'd get I'd get two or three or four church calendars, and these church calendars were always calendars that focus on promises and blessings. So never was there any hard saying from Job or never the 10 commandments or never the Sermon on the Mount. So one time I I wrote to one of these publishers and I told them that I would like to do a, a new church calendar for them, 365 <laughs> verses on the wrath of God. <laughs> and uh, it didn't go over very well. Comforting they, they, verses didn't, for they didn't day. contract me, but <laughs> I I say this, uh, Trevin, because you've told us that you every year when you go on vacation, you take a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, my idea of a vacation um, probably is a little different than yours <laughs> in that I find the Sermon on the Mount, and I've been teaching it for 30-some years, more than that. I find it challenging, more challenging every time I read it. So I think on vacation... I'd want to read something on the Psalms or, you know, one of the prophets uh, or Romans uh, rather than (laughs) getting challenged yet all over again by the powerful, searing words of Jesus. (laughs) But this just brings us back to the point that's being made. I think you come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus starts to ramp it up and uh, he ramps it up with statements about fruit. He warns people about being false prophets and workers of iniquity, and then he tells this parable that unfortunately we use with children, and they have a riot with it, falling down and standing up uh, because of uh, the wise man's house, uh, or the foolish man's house collapsed, and they're laughing about it. Uh, That story is told at the end with such powerful rhetorical impact to say, here are my words. Here is who I am. Do you want to be a follower of mine or not? And it's just an incredible moment. Are you willing to give your life to me? Are you willing to let me be the one who tells you how to live? Are you willing? In other words, it's a lordship Christology that comes through so powerfully in the Sermon on the Mount, because that's the focus of the Sermon on the Mount. If Jesus is focusing on people who need to hear a message of grace, who need to hear that their sins can be forgiven. He, he can do that too, and he will in Matthew chapters 8 and 9 over and over. But in this chapter, he is looking out at Galileans, he's looking out at Jews, and he's saying, I am the Messiah, I'm the new Moses, I'm the King of Kings, I'm the Lord of Lords, and I'm calling you to follow me. Uh, do you want to get in line?
0: Well, I don't think we can, even Trevin can add anything to that. So, (laughs) Scott, thank you so much for joining us. That was a great conversation. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Good to be with you. And Trevin, thanks as always for jumping on with me as well. It's always a pleasure to have you here. And uh, thank you all for listening. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Word Matters is presented by the Holman Christian Standard Bible, a translation that is faithful to the original languages but clear for today's readers. Find out more
2: at hcsb.org.